Andrea. I'm Roger, and this is Two Vets Upstate, and we've got a great show for you today. Alexander McCoy will be on the pod talking about his story, veterans organizing, and the upcoming midterm elections. Not sure if you've heard about those little things. As always, rate and review us on your favorite podcasting app and connect with us on our website. We'd love to hear your stories, your ideas, and interesting tidbits of news in the upstate New York or broader veterans area. Uh, so Andrea, uh, why don't we start off by asking what are you eating or drinking today? So I'm in Dallas and um, we, so we're recording this actually the day after the interview. I missed the interview last night because I was at a steakhouse in Dallas um, at a conference. <laughs> um, so uh, which is also why you can probably hear background noise on my end. So definitely eating steak in Texas. What about you, Roger? Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, I am. Uh, well, I'm in Washington D.C. for the time being, but uh, did bring back with me from upstate some Yancey's fancy Finger Lake cheese uh, from Corfu, New York, which is in Genesee County. Yancey's actually has a pretty wide distribution network. You can find it. In Annapolis, I found it in in DC, uh, but we actually brought this stuff back from the source from from upstate New York. So, so what's new with you, Andrea? What's going on? You're in Dallas. You're everywhere. Candles burning on both ends. Uh, what's going on these days? Yeah, so I'm in Dallas this week at the College Board Conference, representing service to school, New York. Thursday, back upstate, Thursday afternoon, speaking at Bard College um, on Friday morning, and then heading down to D.C., so it's definitely um, a little bit a little bit busy here. Um, Roger, what about you? Yeah, well, we'll look forward to running into each other. My week last week, I was in upstate New York, but unfortunately not under the best circumstances. Uh, my grandfather passed away. He was 78 years old and uh, himself a veteran upstate. I don't know if he listened to the podcast or really ever knew what podcasts were, but it was nice to be in Albion, New York, which is in Orleans County. Grandfather was a great man. He served in Vietnam, uh, pre-Vietnam in Laos and Cambodia. He was a Lance Corporal. Had a lot of stories about um, being an MP, a military policeman, a lot of stories about being on Navy ships, saltwater showers, the whole nine yards. But uh, his service, though it was brief, it was about three or four years, uh, defined him, defined who he was, and he was very proud of that. Uh, it inspired my dad and me and my brother uh, to serve our country as well. So great man. I'm glad to share a name with him and to have heard his stories many, many times over the years. May his memory be a blessing. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, Andrea, why don't we talk about what's going on elsewhere in New York? A couple of things, something that I'm proud to be part of. Um, recently joined Antonio Delgado's Veterans Advisory Committee. Um, it's they're got a, being organized by Pat Ryan, who's a fellow Trumanite of ours, who was um, a challenger in the primary and is now helping to do everything to get Antonio elected in the 19th. Um, some real heavy hitters on that council. Um, and what else is going on? I mean, if you're having issues with the GI Bill and payment, uh, make time, make sure you take the time to rectify that with the VA, even though it's convenient, and call your member of Congress. Um, 
this is a really big issue right now in higher ed and government should function better than this. You deserve better. Um, and your elected representatives can't do anything about it if they don't know it's an issue. So make sure we reach out to them. That's and, a good point. Go ahead. And uh, we should say that we have uh, breaking news today. Uh, Governor Cuomo and GOP gubernatorial candidate Mark Molinaro will square off in a one-on-one -on -one televised debate today, which is Tuesday. It's going to be taped here in just a few hours in the afternoon, and it'll be aired in the evening on CBS radio and CBS television across the state. Andrea, what's going on uh, elsewhere across the nation that impacts veterans? So, shocker, foreign adversaries are targeting veterans and veterans groups online. Um, they're deliberately deceiving, dying misinformation, using social media as a tool or weapon to foster disharmony and anger in our community. Luckily, vets like fellow Trumanite Christopher Goldsmith and groups like Vietnam Vets of America have been sounding the alarm while all this year, and their work recently got recognized in the Wall Street Journal. Roger, what else in the nation is uh, happening that impacts that? Yeah, speaking of your uh, your previous point there, I was half joking uh, yesterday. I told someone that uh, folks like Chris who are at work on this are really like uh, the modern day Paul Revere. You know, it's uh, one if by land, two if by sea, and three if by tweet. There's my dad joke contribution for the podcast today. Good, um, good, good, good job, Roger. You made it funny. I did. It's great. Um, I got to get him in where I can. Um, Sort of a darker transition to some very troubling news out of uh, the Trump administration's Department of Health and Human Services. Health and Human Services is this notion that uh, the administration is looking to define uh, transgender out of existence. Um, HHS has argued that the term sex was never meant to include gender identity or things like homosexuality, and that uh, the Obama administration wrongfully extended civil rights protections to people who should not have had them. I couldn't disagree more strongly with this as a human being, basically. Yeah, that's, that's, that's just so absurd. It's, I, you know what? I'm not going to go on a positive America-style rant about this. It's just absurd. It's just wrong. And it, yeah, I mean, uh, look, nothing has changed here, friends. Uh, transgender Americans are Americans. They always have been. Uh, restricting the rights of American citizens because they may make us uncomfortable or their choices may make us uncomfortable, never the answer. Um, transgender Americans, like the Truman National Security Project put out yesterday, they serve this country and their communities in a variety of ways that keep us safe, free, and prosperous. Um, and a little bit of a history lesson it's the diversity of our nation that is our strength. Uh, it was our best competitive advantage, it made us into the great nation we are today. And again, this potential change is just, it's not just bad policy, it's just being a bad person. And surely we can agree that we have no place for that in a representative government. Um, why don't we move on to shout outs? Uh, Andrea, who we got up first? Okay, our shout-outs are to Pam Campos-Palma um, and all the vet organized who assembled in New York City last week for the for Common Defense. Nice to see veterans groups train their fellow vets in organizing critical skills required for defending our democracy. And also to the Unauthorized Absence podcast, 
This podcast is intended for, to promote a platform for progressive women or gender non-conforming vets, their stories, and the radical transformative work that they are doing, prioritizing the voices of those who also identify as queer and or a person of color. And that's Amber Mapwig on the Unauthorized App Podcast. Yeah. Big kudos to Amber and to Pam and to all the veterans out there who are organizing and hitting the streets to uh, make their voices heard and protect our democracy. So our guest today is Alexander McCoy. He is a Marine Corps veteran. He works or has worked with Beyond the Choir, Common Defense, Vets Against Trump, and has written for a bunch of places, including the New York Times, Reuters, Foreign Policy, and Task and Purpose. Uh, he's one of the hardest working veterans helping other veterans find their voice and access their power. And we are honored to have him on the show today. Uh, so Alex, welcome and uh, start us off by telling us how you grew up and what made you decide to serve. <laughs> Thanks. Um, so I was a Navy brat. Uh, my dad was career Navy, started enlisted and then went officer. And um, so I grew up all over the world. Uh, you know, I was born in D.C., lived in Virginia Beach, Japan, England, California, back to Virginia Beach. My dad retired and worked for Raytheon, and I graduated high school in Rhode Island. Um, and, you know, I swore I'd never join the Navy. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I uh, my grand ambition was to become an actor. Um, but turns out that you need talent for that. And, uh, so after, after, you know, that not going so well, uh, my dad unbeknownst to me went on the internet and pretended to be me and filled out the request information form for every single branch. Uh, and the next thing I knew there was a Marine Corps recruiter at my front door and I'm like, can I help you? <laughs> uh, and I very impulsively signed up and, you know, decided like, okay, well let's have an adventure and, uh, you know, I'm not really doing anything else with my life. So. How soon can I ship out? And the rest is history. <laughs> I'm trying to think of what I would do if a Marine Corps recruiter showed up to my front door. Uh, you know, maybe uh, maybe run for the hills, uh, find a new name. <laughs> and a new I mean, well, I figured I knew the drill, right? I'll take the free swag, I'll get the shirt and the thermos and the you know the, the coaster and send him on his way. But <laughs> you know, they 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 knew their business, so they got you. They got you good. Well. Um, are there any particular parts of your service that were memorable things that you think back on things that you miss, um, about serving in the Marines? Well, I was an embassy guard in Saudi Arabia. Um, and that's been on my mind a lot recently. You know, there's been a lot of things in the news about the Saudi Arabian government murdering a Washington post journalist and, you know, the, giant refugee crisis that has been created due to the war in Yemen. And, you know, I, I just, I, I remember being in Saudi Arabia at the U S embassy in Riyadh and getting to see very up close, the massive like social economic, you know, divide between the, the ruling, um, Saudis and then the regular people 
Um, and then, you know, as a diplomat kind of moving in the circles of, of the, you know, the, the princes and the princesses and the, you know, all the kind of senior people who could get away with breaking all the rules. And, you know, for me, I think that that was kind of the, the beginning of my political waking awakening in a way I, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to see it put so starkly, um, be so blatant and then come back to your own country and start to recognize some of the same things. Yeah. That's a good reminder I have for today. Um, so can you talk a little bit about your transition from the service? And I, are you, I think you're still at Columbia. Is that right? What was that transition? That's right. Yeah. So I, I got out and, um, you know, I was, I was, in, in embassies with diplomats who were all, you know, super intelligent people who went to great schools. And I, you know, if there's one thing that the Marine Corps teaches you, it's uh, to have an often like unearned sense of superiority. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> just a natural sense of I'm better than everyone else uh, is kind of what the Marine sure. Corps teaches you. Uh, so, you know, I, I had this idea in my head that like, well, all these people went to good colleges, like, why shouldn't I? I'm as smart as they are. Um, you know, so why not go for it? Right. Uh, I had, you know, what, what I think one of the founders of the warrior scholar project, uh, put it, I think very well, that the right combination of ignorance and, uh, ambition. (laughs) Um, so I, I started applying to all these kind of colleges thinking like, you know, what the heck, right. You can't get, you can't get in if you don't apply. And we'll see how it goes. And just got really frustrated with uh, the reality that most colleges um, that are, you know, kind of the prestigious ones that set you up for a career uh, of like, you know, some of some of the fancy places people can work uh, and that we tell our kids like, oh, yeah, you got to like study hard and get into Harvard and all that. A lot of these schools were just not interested in me. They And it wasn't because of like grades or merit or anything. It was, you know, I had one college um, tell me basically directly, we'd rather accept a 16 year old than a 25 year old veteran. Um, yeah. So, you know, really? I, I kind of was confronted by this system um, and struggled to navigate it and, you know, felt like I didn't, I hadn't done anything wrong with my life. I, you know, was 18, graduated high school, went, joined the Marines, did six years of that, did a decently good job. And, you know, I was like, why not? Uh, but, uh, ended up, you know, finding a place, uh, in Columbia university that was one of the few schools that, seem to even have a place for people like me. Um, and so my transition at first, I was like, this is messed up. Like these top schools should, should be more open. They should like accept more veterans. And I started going on kind of this crusade of, you know, um, of trying to get the, you know, the Ivy league colleges to accept more veterans. And, you know, I got involved with service to school, which I know Andrea's, um, now, you know, now on the staff of, and I was kind of doing all these things, doing all this writing. Uh, and I think over time I've kind of, you know, changed my mind a little bit about what it is that needs to be done. Like I still believe in helping individuals, you know, apply and navigate the system. But part of what resulted in me transitioning to becoming an organizer is deciding the problem is the system, not the people. 
And we have to, you know, we have to address the fact that like there is an Ivy league and that your future is so dependent on what school you go to. And that there is like a vast, you know, uh, difference in your life trajectory based on something that seems pretty arbitrary and often isn't really based on merit so much as like where you come from and who your parents are and what zip code you went to school in and what order you did stuff in your life. Well, that's a, that's a pretty good transition because I think I know you from social media mostly because of your involvement in organizing and specifically veterans organizing. Um, how did you get involved with that? Uh, I guess you mentioned through sort of higher education advocacy. Um, can you talk a little bit more about your transition to more organizing uh, focus specifically and, and what you think of that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so I think this is a really important point. Uh, you know, in the veteran community, you often hear people talk about being a veteran advocate. Like we need more advocates. We're all veteran advocacy organizations, you know, and, uh, I don't, I don't think many people really unpack exactly what that is and what that means. Uh, so one of the things that I've learned is advocacy, when you get right down to it, what you're really doing is you're going to people who have power and you're asking them to do something. You're asking them to change something. You're asking them to give you something. They're asking, you know, you're asking them to take an action on your behalf. Um, and that only works if the people in power are interested in listening to you. Uh, and I think in the veteran community, we've, we've gotten into, you know, the habit from maybe from times past or, you know, when political circumstances were different, where we've adapted to an assumption that the people in Congress or, you know, in our state governments or in the military will listen to good ideas and will, you know, do the right thing because we tell them it's the right thing. And, you know, when I, when I, when I got involved in advocacy work, often what happened was you would tell all the most like heart wrenching stories about, you know, veterans and, you know, the struggles they were going through and the, 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 the factors that were leading to those struggles. And it would just kind of go nowhere, you know, that there would be like, okay, that's, that's really sad, but how do we pay for it? You know, or there are more important considerations. Um, so, so I, you know, one of the things that I've learned is that there are different ways that you can accomplish change. Um, you know, cause ultimately what we're trying to do is, is accomplish change. We're trying to make our lives better. We're going to try to fight for ourselves and the people we care about. And we're trying to make a system that is better serving to our needs. And advocacy isn't the only way to do that. Um, and in this moment where, you know, everything seems broken. Politicians are not listening. They're not holding town halls. They're, you know, if you can get a meeting, they, they nod politely and then go back to doing, you know, what their other priorities are. Um, we need something more. Um, and so there's, there's kind of like two options. There's, you know, uh, the, the traditional next step is, is something called mobilizing and mobilizing is where, 
you all get together and you, you know, try to show your strength in numbers. Um, you, you know, this is your like, everybody call your member of Congress approach, right? We're going to call them as many times. And so that's ultimately the same thing as advocacy, but you're just doing it with more people in the hopes that the fact that you have more people will convince your, your people in power to do the right thing. Um, and, you know, I think most of us, you know, over the past couple of years, seeing the, the state of things in Congress, seeing the Trump administration, that hasn't worked, worked either. <laughs> um, you know, they're still passing these terrible bills. They're still cutting all the things, you know, and so we need something more, right? And what that thing more that we can be doing is, is organizing. Um, and organizing is different from advocacy and from mobilizing in that what it is ultimately about is changing who the people in power are. Um, it's not, you know, going to them and begging for them to do the right thing. It's not trying to flex your muscles at them. It's actually building your own capacity and finding and elevating your own leadership, you know, from within your own community. It's, you know, creating new organizations and connections and then doing stuff together. Uh, and that's what I've kind of dedicated my time to in, uh, over the past several years. For veterans who might think like you and be motivated by some of the same things as you, how do, what's the best route for a transitioning veteran to get involved in the organizing space? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's challenging right now because there frankly is not a lot of organizing happening, <laughs> um, which is weird to say. I mean, we're in a moment right now where right. there's, there's a, there's a giant revolution going on. There's a renaissance of civic engagement. People are founding indivisible chapters and, you know, they're showing up to all the marches and everything, but there's, there's not, you know, it, it, we've become more and more out of touch with each other. You know, we've, we've become more dependent upon, you know, social media. We've become like, you know, uh, trying to kind of complacent and, you know, assuming that there will always be people in power who will listen to us. And so what we got to do is we have to build our own, our own political voice. We have to build our own communities and we have to f recognize that the organizations that exist for veterans right now often are not representing us. They're not, you know, they don't look like me and the vets that I know. They don't look like the things that I believe, you know, and, um, and that's a problem. So, you know, what, what can people do? All right. So you can, uh, you, you should start locally. You should look at what is actually happening in your community. Uh, what are the things happening around the issues that affect you, that you care about, that get you angry? Right. Like what, what pisses you off, right. Find the people who are fighting, it, you know, uh, and that can not necessarily be something that's veteran related. You know, you don't have to be in a veteran organization that does, you know, X, you can just join an organization that's fighting on X and that is organizing around X and be a veteran in it. And like, talk about your experience as it relates to that and bring that unique lens. Um, and that's, I think the easiest way to do it, uh, I'm part of an organization that's called Common Defense, um, and we're trying to uh, provide, you know, we're trying to build an explicitly veteran movement um, 
that's fighting on, you know, progressive issues. It's fighting for, you know, uh, a more just and equal uh, America. And, you know, it's trying to fight to change the way the people in power um, are not representing us. Uh, but it's tough. There's not, you know, we're, we're small and it's scrappy and we're, you know, we're building it from scratch because so, so much, you know, people don't join things anymore and they don't, you know, uh, we've lost touch with, with our roots, uh, of having strong, coherent communities that are working together. But I think that's changing. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I'm struck, um, we'll, we'll pivot to talking about the election next, but, uh, by sort of the idea that if we want things to change, we have to change the, the people that we want uh, and people who, uh, you know, look like us and have had experiences like us are not necessarily the type of people who traditionally run for and get elected to Congress. So uh, <laughs> we need more yeah. real people running for office, right, people who have right. flaws, right? People who are not like rich people created in a test tube with <laughs> nothing that could be used against them you know, but have never gotten a parking ticket. So can't even relate to ever getting one, you know? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Uh, so, uh, with that in mind, not sure if you've heard, uh, there's an election coming up, uh, about just by the time (laughs) you don't say, (laughs) uh, we keep it under wraps pretty well. Uh, by the time uh, we go live with this episode, it'll be about two weeks until the polls open, which is, uh, frightening. We should say that in a lot of states, early voting is already a thing that is happening. So mm-hmm. people are actually casting ballots. This thing is real and it's it's happening. Um, what are the big three to five storylines that you're watching? And are there any particular races around the country that you're looking at? Oh, boy. Um, so let's start with, with overall themes, right? Big storylines. Um, so one thing that is going to happen. Uh, it's not a question. It's, it's happening is I think there's a rising, there is a rising generation of, you know, a cohort of young, diverse, progressive women, uh, particularly like women of color who come from working class backgrounds who are going to be elected to Congress this year. And that's, I, I think people don't, realize how much that's going to shake things up uh once you know people like alexandria ocasio-cortez and iliana omar and deb Haaland and ayana presley and you know all these amazing inspirational figures are in congress and not only in congress but in congress together and got to congress despite not with the help of some of the current leadership of the democratic party. Um, so I think that's that's really going to shake things up. Um, and I think that, you know, it's just like, I, I was surprised by how affected I was by seeing Alexandria Ocasio Cortez win. I, it was just like so weird and striking to, see someone my age (laughs) win a congressional seat, you know, uh, I'm 30, uh, you know, and I think she's, you know, even younger than I am actually. But, uh, but, you know, just like we're so used to watching on TV, these, you know, these people that just seem like no one that I know I have, I can't relate to at all. And just to see a young, like, like not going to take shit from nobody generation kind of step in 
it has been really inspirational to me. So that's that's one yeah. story. Um, another thing that I'm watching is, you know, and I think it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. Uh, are there's been a lot of hype around veterans running for office, particularly as Democrats. You know, there's been so many articles about, you know, veterans are the Democrats' secret weapon, you know, and all these viral ads about, you know, like, I have no policy positions, but jets and airplanes directed by Michael Bay, you know, walking in front of explosions. And it's it's just kind of been, like, really interesting to watch as a veteran and, and kind of think about what what the difference is between – saying the Republicans use veterans as props and responding to that with, well, the Democrats should use veterans as props too, you know, versus like truly saying, all right, we need to be at the table and our voice needs to be actually heard, not have people like Donald Trump speaking for us. Um, And I think that there's like a big difference between those things. So it'll be interesting to see like how all these veteran candidates actually do. Um, and there's several that are great, you know, and there are several that are, I think, less great. Um, and so that'll be that's a story that I'm watching. Um, and, and we actually just saw uh, General McChrystal publish an op-ed in the, in the Wall Street Journal uh, yesterday right. kind of about this right. urging <laughs> discernment, I guess, is the tactful way to put it. Right. Yeah. Make him earn it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. Another thing that I'm really watching for these midterms is I think and I think this is a much bigger story than, uh, you know, it's it's I think it's more more complicated and nuanced than it's often portrayed. There are a couple different competing ideas about how Democrats should run in rural, like, quote unquote, Trump country areas, these kind of economically depressed, you know, uh, places with where, where people don't really have college degrees, um, where the jobs aren't really there that are kind of ravaged by the opioid crisis that, you know, uh, feel left behind that are not necessarily very diverse. And there's been different approaches and there are candidates running this year, uh, representing those different approaches. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see how they do. Um, one of the approaches is kind of your blue dog, like the, the answer to win in these areas is to be quote unquote centrist. Um, it's to, you know, be like really, you know, kind of the Joe Manchin style, right? You know, you vote for Kavanaugh, you, you know, vote for Gorsuch, you support, you know, deregulating the banks, you, do a bunch of ads about how much you love guns, you know, things like that uh, is, is kind of one, one lane. Um, the other lane, the other kind of approach and one, you know, the approach of some of the candidates that I'm most excited about is actually quite different. It's the progressive like populist approach. It's where, you know, you have candidates that are kind of unapologetically saying, we need Medicare for all, we need, you know, immigration reform, we need, uh, you know, common sense gun, gun control, you know, but like, not, uh, not like kind of hiding what they believe, but also 
and and making this the centerpiece of what they're talking about directly confronting the way that people are sick of politics um that you know they're directly confronting the corporate money that has flooded in they're confronting the way it has bought their opposition they're confronting the way you know wall street has devastated many of these communities and is often behind some of the things uh like you know the opioid crisis uh, that are affecting so many people. Uh, and it's a very different approach. It's, it's, you know, it, I think people think w- w- a lot of the way we talk about populism, people use it as like interchangeable for like what Trump does, but it's really not. It, what populism means is basically fighting, picking fights and naming the people responsible for our problems. Um, and I think that too often, mm-hmm. Democrats are unwilling to do that. Uh, you know, that, that the answer to make America great again, you know, they'll say is America was already great. America is already great. And that's just fundamentally unsatisfying if you face any adversity or problems in your life. Uh, you know, like you don't want to hear everything is fine. You have no real problems. Um, so, (laughs) you know, compelling message. Yeah. Right. So if, you know, if we want people to vote for us, right, and they're experiencing, like, challenges, right, you have to come up with an alternative explanation for why things suck (laughs) and an alternative explanation for how to make things better. Like, Trump's is, like, a lie. Like, his explanation for why things suck is immigrants made it suck, therefore get rid of all the immigrants, you know? but. But he has one. He has a very clear one. Everyone kind of understands what his explanation is. And, you know, so many candidates, and this frustrates me no end, don't have a competing explanation. They just kind of run on, Trump is rude. Here's my website. It has no issues page. And, (laughs) like, I went to lots of fancy schools and had lots of fancy jobs, right? And, uh, you know, I just, my experience, you know, in some of the organizing we've done, and particularly in a race in Pennsylvania's 11th district with a candidate named Jess King, uh, which is deep, deep, you know, Republican country, uh, you know, according to the traditional pundits, um, voted for Trump by 26%. uh, You know, like that, that, the kind of like, America is already great and like I'll vote for Kavanaugh <laughs> approach to politics just is not satisfying to people. Um, if they're getting from one side, here's why things suck and how I'll make them better. And they're getting from the other side, things don't suck or I will like make, I will, I will contribute less to the sucking. <laughs> then it's just not they're, they're Of course they're going to vote for the other side. Uh, so, you know, w- what we found is that people are just like sick and frustrated of politics and they want to know how to fix it. Um, and, you know, when we talk about, you know, people are progressive, people are conservative, people are centrist, right? So many of the labels, I think, obscure how people vote rather than actually explaining them. Mm-hmm. Um so I want to I want to spend a couple seconds to talk about you know my personal soapbox here. Please. I think you know the what the what the other side of you know what the other democratic like centrist strategy misses. I think is that when people say I'm a centrist, 
or when they say I'm a moderate, what they're not saying is I want I like I support invading Iraq. I want to lower the corporate tax rate. And, you know, I. Right. 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 You know, like they're not saying those like <laughs> they're not like saying I want to deregulate bank regulations. They're not saying <laughs> like I I want market based solutions for healthcare. You know, like they're saying I'm I, I, what they're mostly saying is I feel alienated from politics in general, you know, or they're saying I have like opinions on issues that don't map perfectly on the way that the issues are kind of divided up party by party. And so I'm going to vote for whatever feels the most salient in this political moment. Whatever feels the most urgent is the way I'm kind of going to go. But they're not saying like most people in America (laughs) who say I'm a moderate or I'm a centrist are mostly saying politicians are terrible. I see on TV people yelling. I don't like that. You know, I don't like getting into fights with my neighbors and my family. You know, everything seems like it's corrupt and I don't know how to relate to it. And we don't engage with that enough. I think we need to like engage yeah. with people who feel that way. And I think we need to like validate that there is truth in that, you know, and it, it, it feels that way for a reason, <laughs> you know? So yep. when we, when we run progressives in these like, you know, rural areas that are like racked by the opioid crisis, facing like problems from the tariffs when they're like, you know, trying to figure out explanations for why all the kids are moving away and not coming back and the jobs are struggling, you know, they're not turned off by the fact that someone is saying is supporting Medicare for all. They're not like, oh, they're too progressive. You know, like this left right spectrum is a figment of the imagination of the political class of people who pay a lot of attention to politics, read politics articles every day, you know, and it's an oversimplification that I think doesn't match most people's lived experience. If you think about the people who you know, the people in your family, the people in your squad in the Marine Corps, they're not like, oh, yes, I I am here on this left-right spectrum, right? (laughs) Right. Thus far and no farther, you know? (laughs) Or at least very few people are, are, you know, like that. You know, there are some. There are people who are like very, you know, a blue wave, you know. But 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 yeah. like blue la- blue wave does not, you know, attract anyone who wasn't like already invested in that label. Um, right. So, you know, we yeah. need we need something more satisfying. Yeah. And there is a large swath of the population that is in that centrist, you know, or moderate uh, alienated by the politics of today and, you know, willing to entertain outsiders, it is a large chunk of the population, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, you can't clearly, I think if 2016 taught us anything, which it taught us many bad things probably, but, uh, is you can't ignore those people or, or you can't just assume that, uh, you know, your, your glittering virtues will, will come through without having to, you know, get down and talk to people and show up. Yeah. And this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, you know, like we need real people running for office, you know, who feel like a real person, not a robot. You know, it goes back to the veteran candidates thing. I think the reason people like, I think the reason veterans resonate with like non-veteran voters is because they think of a veteran as being like working class. They think of, they're not thinking of, 
the generals and the admirals and like, you know, Congressman Seth Moulton's class at Harvard, right? They're thinking of, you know, your cousin who did a stint in the army and now works in his uncle's auto body shop. That's who they're thinking about. They're thinking right. about their grandpa who's yeah. retired and in the wheelchair. You know, they're thinking of their aunt who, you know, now works at the post office, but, you know, was in the Air Force for a while. You know, they're, they're, they're thinking of it being someone who is relatable, who is down to, down to earth and is pragmatic. And that's what they're looking for. And I think too many candidates that we, you know, that we're running that are these Dem secret weapon candidates were just like not that. You know, and some of the ones that are doing the best are the ones that like are really that, <laughs> you know, I like I would point yeah. to Richard Ojeda in West Virginia. You know, he's like the most like yeah. real yeah. salt of the earth kind of person I've ever seen, you know, down to like the <laughs> ranting at his like selfie Facebook live in his truck, you know, <laughs> and then people are like, it's what you right, expect you know? veterans, they're right? They're like, I recognize mode. this character, you know, like I know who this is. This feels like <laughs> a real person. I can trust that he's like, he means what he says. And, you know, like that's, that's kind of like what it's, what, what people crave. People crave authenticity. You know, they don't want like these highly produced, exactly. whole tested, yep. like milk toast messages that, you know, don't say anything substantive, you know, and like they don't want all these dark ads and TV ads and like who knows if it's even the Russians, you know, like that's that just doesn't work. And <laughs> I, I think, you know, to go back to my my, my my point, we're seeing these different strategies play out. And I think the results are really going to come home uh, in the midterms. Um, and it's my hope that, you know, we learn the right lessons. Yeah, well said. Um, I think we'll put a pin in. I was going to ask you about Patagonia endorsing uh, the company, Patagonia endorsing uh, two candidates for the Senate, but maybe we'll we'll put a pin in that one for for after the election because there's a lot to unpack there. Um, but I want to ask you here, sort of the last question. We focus a lot on these midterm elections, but. Mm-hmm. The truth is that we're going to have to go through this all over again in two years, which seems very Mm -hmm. close and very far away at the same time. And before that, we're going to have to do this for the odd year elections for state and local uh, Virginia, I think, gubernatorial coming up in 2019. So Mm -hmm. how do we build and organize for beyond the immediate election? You know, what what does it take to win and sustain in the long term? Mm hmm. Um, well, you know, (laughs) sustaining, um, that's, that's really what it takes. I mean, I think that veterans make natural organizers for a lot of different reasons. Uh, but one of them is that we just kind of like, if you think, if you think about elections as if they're, uh, deployments, you know, like every couple years there'll be this big thing that happens that we got to like hustle for, for a whole, like six months and you know, then it's over. Right. Right. Too often what we've done is we become like so centered on candidates that like, 
you know, everything is all about run for office. We need more people to run for office. We need more of this type of person to run for office. We need like everyone, everyone's doing all these trainings to train people how to run for office. And while that's important, what not enough people are doing is training people to not run for office and instead to organize in their community, you know, and because it's as if, it's as if we took the same approach if we, with elections uh, or if we took the same approach with deployments as we did with elections. It's as if we had a reserve unit that like didn't drill and then we just said, all right, you're all deploying to Afghanistan for six months. And they go to Afghanistan and it's like, oh, my God, and everything is happening. And it's high stakes and everyone's stressed and they're freaking out and like – you know, they're working really hard and, you know, and then you, you know, you go home and it's over and then everyone goes back and then there's like no training, there's no lead up, there's no like preparing people for the stress of that. There's no like post deployment catching you and like getting you the care you need and like training to like do it again. There's no preservation of the knowledge that we accrued through that hard earned experience. We just like, we run campaigns and everything is so about the candidates that the candidates, they win or they lose whatever. And they just like the whole campaign apparatus that they built just kind of falls in by the wayside, disintegrates, is not maintained. And we have to rebuild it all over again the next time. Um, so we need to not do that. Right. We need to like the midterms will be over one way or another Either Democrats will capture at least one chamber of, Congre- uh, of Congress uh, or Democrats will not. <laughs> and both of those possible outcomes have profound implications. <laughs> Either Democrats are you know, able to really stop the madness for the first time or – Trump will have won and he will have won through candidates that he endorsed that were running on a Trumpy roadmap winning and it will be Trump's party and it will get worse. So one way or another, we are going to have to do some major work and we're going to have to like do it together and we're going to have to do it continuously. Like the time to be thinking about, you know, what to do next is now. Um, and so, so what does that look like, right? So we need to we need to train people to be organizers. You know, we need to be training ourselves as a group within our local community in tactics that we can use to grow. We need to train ourselves in tactics we can use to exercise our power. We need to be preparing and identifying leaders and identifying followers. And, you know, organizing those leaders and followers so that we're ready when 2020 cycle comes up, you know, and for all the like talk about, oh, you know, we need people to run for Congress, right? Like leaders are going to emerge through doing the work and they're going to have more credibility and they're going to be better and they're going to like speak with authenticity if they came out of like fighting the shared struggle, 
You know, like we don't want a bunch of like we, we don't want to go back to the 1800s, you know, military where, you know, you just take whatever rich person happened to be from your town and congratulations, that's your colonel. Oh, you know, <laughs> that's not a good way of running a military. And it's also not a good way of running the politics. Yeah. You know, it's not way, a good way of running a movement. And, you know, we'd much rather have the, you know, the, the first sergeant who led you through, you know, Bastogne you know, get a battlefield commission and that's your officer, you know, you'd rather have, uh, you know, a, a kind of a community that has been through a shared struggle that their, you know, their voice and their vision and their, you know, actions are informed by that shared struggle. So we need to be struggling and we need that struggle to be shared. Uh, so we need to train to do that and we need to be building the mechanisms we can do that can do that. We need to be building the containers to do that. We need to be not losing touch with each other. In fact, we need to constantly be growing. Uh, one of the biggest problems with local democratic parties right now is that they're not oriented towards growth. There is like no structural incentive for like local democratic committees to reach out to new people. Um, and the people who occupy many of these local party positions, they occupy them because they, they, they kind of played the insider game and they showed up and there's kind of this attitude of like, well, if you wanted to, you know, be here, you should have shown up and figured out how the system works, you know, and that's, and that doesn't, that's, that's how we got in this right. mess. Um, in, in the Bronx, when AOC was, was doing her primary, like the constant experience was there would be these giant, like apartment buildings full of like African-American voters who voted for Obama that like weren't registered as Democrats because no one had told them that you had to register as a Democrat or even that like a primary election was a thing because there was a structural incentive for the people who hold power to keep it by keeping, you know, the system inaccessible. And that's no longer possible in this moment of threat. Yeah. I think it's, uh, goes back to the point that you made earlier about, you know, getting people in there, you know, especially in an office uh, who will listen, uh, it, it, you, it doesn't stop there, right? Because you need to talk once they're in office mm-hmm. in a cogent, you know, way that makes sense in a way that they can listen to you. Um, and I know that I think you're doing some work uh, with Common Defense uh, and mm-hmm. the Veteran Organizing Institute about what that future might look like. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about that a little bit as we wrap up. Definitely. Um, so the Veteran Organizing Institute is a uh, it's it's a training retreat um, where we take cohorts of about thirty to forty veterans, uh, diverse progressives from around the country and from like different different contexts, different issues that animate them. You know, people who are like deeply embedded in organizing already, but also people who are like new and and have just like realized I need to do something. Um, And we take them and we train them how to be an organizer and specifically how to be an organizer of fellow veterans in their community. Um, And so we rotate this this training around the country. Um, I think we're on our fourth one now. but our next our next one is in Arizona. We're, we 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 had one this June in North Carolina. Uh, we have one in December in Arizona that uh, applications just closed on. Uh, but you can still apply to our June 2019 uh, cohort, 
um, at beyondthechoir.org slash VOI. Um, and you can also check out the Veteran Organizing Institute on Facebook, uh, where you can watch some great video testimonials of participants. Um, Common Defense, uh, which is a uh, which is a grassroots organization um, that is e- explicitly fighting both on issues that matter uh, to us and also in elections, uh, independently from and not accountable to the Democratic Party, um, fighting purely based on our values. Uh, and our goal, you know, we're. It's, it's, it's un, both unfortunate and an opportunity that we're pretty much the only ones out there really doing robust uh, organizing of veterans, like true organizing in the field right now, um, at least on the left. Um, you know, there's there's some great uh, partners that, you know, stay stay non-political, you know, are focused on issues. Um, you know, there's some kind of nascent. Um, organizing happening in, in some other leftist groups, but uh, you know we're we're trying to fill a gap. You know that the Democratic Party is largely not taken organizing seriously, uh, and particularly not taken veterans seriously. Um, and there was a big New York Times article uh, a couple weeks ago um, explicitly about that uh, that you should check out. Um, but we're trying to to do you know what hasn't been done. We're trying to build our own political voice. Uh, we're trying to be, you know, that same strategy I talked about, you know, not strategy, but values, um, you know, that really connects with people and explains how we've gotten into this point and what we need to do about it to fix it. Uh, and we're trying to do it, you know, more and more, uh, through local, uh, community organizing within people's communities. We just did a stand-up of our chapter in New York. Um, we've got a pretty robust chapter in Pennsylvania. You know, we're looking at setting up chapters um, here, hopefully before the election. Um, in Arizona, we've got some great work going on in some other places. Uh, Maine, you know, we're looking closely at Florida and Georgia and Texas, um, you know, and several other places that there's just been like increasing amounts of energy. Um, but we're small, we're scrappy and we're just starting. And you know what? Like, it's not a competition. If you've got a bunch of vets, you know, that, you know, in your area and you, um, you know, and you, and you want to fight for what you believe in, like you should start doing that. And you know, that's, uh, that's how we win. Well, thanks Alex, uh, for your time. Uh, inspiring work that you're doing, important work, and look forward to seeing it grow. Uh, and I'll just say that uh, if you hear a knock at the door uh, and it's a Marine Corps recruiter, uh, run away this time. Doc, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Thanks. Thanks for being here. We look forward to having you out again in the future. Great. Vote November. Damn right. Everybody vote. Call your grandma. <laughs>